0: Welcome back to the History of the Cold War podcast, Episode 7, Capitalism, Part 2. So the last time we spoke, I outlined the first two phases of capitalism, classical trade and merchant capitalism, and we looked at the beginning of industrial capitalism in Great Britain and the opposing visions of capitalism in, in early America. In this segment, we will outline the rise of the first era of globalization, its fall, and the rise of consumer capitalism in the United States. As we saw in our last segment, the Southern Democrats and the Confederate States of America were defeated by the Northern Republicans, opening the way for the Republicans to dominate the reunited nation and push their economic agenda of modernization, industrialization, and banking. Government under Lincoln and the Republicans became champions of business, raising tariffs, creating a national currency, and underwriting railroad construction. Chief among these was the Trans-Pacific Railroad that connected the East Coast with the West, speeding up transport, travel, and communications. The railroads opened the plains and mountains of the American West to white hunters, miners, ranchers, settlers, and farmers. The Native Americans fought back against these encroachments on their land with desperation and bravery against a technologically and numerically superior enemy until they lacked the capacity to resist any more. Public and private corporations also came into being during this period, limiting the liability of company owners. However, there was a deep-seated distrust amongst many Americans for corporations. They saw corporations as a tool of avoidance by the rich of personal responsibility. There was also a mistrust of paper profits implicit in buying and selling something as abstract as a share in a company expressed on paper. Capitalism shaped the development of the Western United States far more than the East. Eastern American cities were founded on rivers or deep-water ports for ocean-going vessels. Western cities were situated by railroads, mines, or cattle. Americans going west were imagined as rugged individuals in the shape of prospectors, mountain men, or cowboys, and celebrated in the newspapers, novels, and cheap penny magazines of the period. These images became a part of the American mythology in characters such as John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, and TV shows like Gunsmoke, which would be all big during the Cold War. Yet in real life, most were hired by corporate railroads, worked in large corporate mines, or rustled corporate cattle. They were the equivalent of the 19th century office workers. The Republican control of the market also saw the birth of great industrialists like Carnegie, who dominated steel, Rockefeller, who controlled oil, and J.P. Morgan, who commanded capital, the lifeblood of industries. J.P. Morgan formed U.S. Steel, a company even larger than Carnegie's. He reorganized and controlled some 24 railroads, he helped establish General Electric and at and and another 13 major corporations of the period. Adjusted for inflation, these men became far richer than our modern entrepreneurs. For example, adjusted for inflation, Rockefeller, at his death, was worth $392 billion, whereas the richest man in 2016, Bill Gates, is only worth $77 billion. These men fundamentally transformed America. They altered America from a largely agricultural nation, to one based on large cities, not just on the east coast like New York and Boston, but in the interior like Chicago, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, and Buffalo. These cities were built of steel buildings and linked to each other by steel rails supplied by Carnegie Steel Mills, which along with other factories attracted millions of immigrants from Europe. In all, 56 million European men, women, and children made the Atlantic crossing and what was the largest migration in history. These new arrivals faced resentment as they primarily came from Southern and Eastern Europe and were Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Jewish, unlike the immigrants from the 18th and early 19th century who came from Northern Europe and were Protestant. Corporations in America also became extremely powerful. J.P. Morgan never held any political office, but his mastery of the financial markets gave him greater power than any elected officials, whose votes he often bought. No senator or governor was so directly controlled the lives of so many people as Carnegie, whose hundreds of thousands of employees looked to him for wages on which they and millions of their dependents relied. Despite the growth and power of American industry and capital, London and the British Empire remained at the heart of the financial world. The British gold standard underwrote the expansion of the global economy into what some have called the first age of globalization, which lasted roughly from 1850 to 1914. The opening years of the 20th century were the closest thing that the world has ever seen to a free market for goods, capital, and labor, something the nations of the 21st century have been trying to reestablish. This global expansion was made possible through steam power via ships and railroads and modern weaponry, which opened new markets and expanded others. Those who resisted, like the Chinese or Native Americans, to embrace modernity were subjugated by the Europeans or Americans. The introduction of the Telegraph made business news and capital travel faster than ever before. Merchants invested in the far corners of the world, from Argentine cattle to Chinese tea. The British commitment to international trade compelled other empires, such as the Dutch, Belgian, and Japanese, to follow suit and adopt liberal trading policies, making more of the world opened with trade and investment. The gold standard was central to this first age of globalization. It brought about stability and predictability that greatly facilitated international trade, investment, migration, and travel. Many people immigrated, and not just from Europe. Millions of Chinese immigrated to Southeast Asia and the Americas, whereas Indians went largely to Africa and the Caribbean. International investment expanded so greatly that by the 1900s, Great Britain exported more than half of its capital overseas and accounted for about one-third of international trade. Investors became increasingly confident that their money would be fairly exchanged in other countries investing abroad, especially in the United States, which had the best return on investment. By 1914, British investment in America was 836 million pounds. By contrast, India, the crown jewel of the British Empire, only stood at 317 million pounds. But not all were happy with this first age of globalization. American Midwestern farmers saw their income continue to decline as their expenses rose. They struggled to make a profit in the growing international market. Faced with destitution, many American farmers banded together to form the populist movement led by William Jennings Bryant, who took the Democratic Party by storm. The populists argued for leaving the gold standard and the economic monetary world system, which they believed was controlled by the British, Yankee, and Jewish bankers. The financial leaders of the world watched in shock in 1896 as the United States, with the largest economy, greatest debt, and most important market for investment in the world, threatened to abandon and thus destroy the world economy. On November the 3rd, Republicans and American business narrowly defeated Bryan and the Democrats, temporarily saving the economic order. However, the attacks on big business didn't end with farmers. Many Americans feared that large corporations would impose monopolistic prices to defraud consumers and drive small independent companies out of business. By 1904, 318 trusts, including those in railroads, local transit, and banking, controlled two-fifths of the nation's industrial output. Journalists and labor soon challenged big business as well. Journalists like Upton Sinclair and others wrote about the terrible conditions of labor and the unhealthy ways in which food and other goods were created which caused an uproar with the middle classes. The new president, Teddy Roosevelt, McKinley had been assassinated in 1901, pushed forward his square deal, a program of progressive reforms to mitigate social evils and bust up the large corporations like Standard Oil and J.P. Morgan's Northern Securities Company, a huge railroad holding company. In all, Teddy Roosevelt brought suit against 44 corporations. Meanwhile, the Knights of Labor organized a diverse group of workers, including skilled, unskilled, black, and women, to fight for workers' rights. They fought for an eight-hour workday, the end of child labor, a graduated income tax, a living wage nationalizing of the utilities and railroads, and the establishment of cooperatives as an alternative to corporations. Other workers' groups, such as the Industrial Workers of the World, and socialists were formed during this period, but their influence never reached the level of labor in Britain or the democratic socialists in Germany. Part of this was American fears about radicalism, which crippled the Knights of Labor after the Haymarket Riot in 1886, when Knights members threw bombs at the police, which resulted in the deaths of seven police officers and four civilians. These events led to a large-scale decline in membership and a general decline in national popularity. A new organization, however, the American Federation of Labor, or AFL, led by Samuel Gompers, soon replaced the Knights as the leading labor organization in America. The AFL was the largest union in the United States for the first half of the 20th century. In 1955, the AFL merged with its longtime rival, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, to form the AFL-CIO, a federation which remains in place to this day. However, despite the rise of organized labor, investigative journalism, progressivism, and more radical movements like socialism and anarchism, the period was dominated by international finance and large monopolies. Many business leaders saw themselves and their companies as elected to positions of power in the country by the American people who chose to buy their goods every day, giving them a quasi-mandate, they felt, to shape the nation and society. By 1914, even the central banking system of the United States, the Federal Reserve, was even quasi-federal, organized much like private corporations. The prosperity of the first globalization was threatened periodically by recessions and panics such as the Panic of 1907. However, the monetary authorities of the era, Great Britain, France, Germany, and sometimes others, worked together to avoid a serious dissolution of the system. The system, however, did break down with the outbreak of the First World War. Much of the world fell into economic recession as the major industrial nations fought each other to a standstill as millions of their best and brightest died in the muddy trenches of the First World War. The war, however, fueled the rise of the United States, which led to a new phase of capitalism, consumer capitalism, as Europe bought arms and supplies from the United States. Conceptually, World War I also helped to fuel consumer capitalism through the development of advertising and the new science of public relations, which sought to engineer or control public opinion on subjects. These social engineers believed they could provide the modern state with a foundation upon which a new stability might be achieved. During the war, President Woodrow Wilson created the U.S. Committee on Public Information, or CPI, a vast propaganda effort to mobilize the nation for war. The government had assumed that the vast majority of the U.S. population would accept the decision to go to war, but they were concerned about pockets of anti-war sentiment in the nation. There were worries about the loyalty of the large American immigrant population. Could the United States count on its large ethnic German population to remain loyal? What about the Irish who despised America's ally, Great Britain? Meanwhile, other working class and far-left organizations maintained that this was a rich man's war and were trying to persuade Americans not to fight. The CPI employed the techniques of advertising and public relations to sell the war to the American people as a noble cause to defend freedom and to make the world safe for democracy. American war propaganda did not appeal to reasons or facts, but emotions. The committee used newsprint, posters, radio, telegraph cable, and movies to broadcast its message. It recruited about 75,000 four-minute men, or volunteers who spoke about the war at social events for an ideal length of four minutes, considering that the average human attention span was judged to be about four minutes at the time. They addressed such subjects as the draft, rationing, war bonds, drives, victory gardens, and why America was fighting. During the war, they learned that not only emotions influenced people, but images. Symbols and cinema were the most effective mediums by which they could get their message across. They came to the conclusion that people would rather be entertained than instructed. The war and with it consumer capitalism fundamentally changed America. Consumer capitalism gave rise to much larger factories than in the 19th century. Consumer capitalism required assembly lines to mass-produce goods like cars or radios, which made necessary larger facilities and workforces. As industry shifted towards larger factories, the power of unions grew. Larger plants were generally easier to unionize as it was harder to monitor and suppress larger workforces. Plus, they didn't have the personal ties between owners and workers that exist in smaller shops. However, many larger firms like GM welcomed unions. They ran large, complex organizations, and they needed a dependable labor force. Unions made it easier for them to negotiate pay and working conditions versus dealing with thousands of individuals or small groups. Leading up to the age of consumerism, from the 1880s through 1918, the American middle class began to grow. Workers' wages had grown, and the new white-collar workforce of accountants, clerks, salesmen, bankers, and lawyers had come into being. America began to shift from an economy based on heavy industries like toolmaking and railroads to one producing children's goods, entertainment items, popular fashions, and cars. Women also became a new and powerful force in the economy as more worked. Women also became an ever-growing consumer class as they shopped for goods at the new department stores, springing up across the country to offer new consumer goods under one roof. America lacked an aristocracy like in Europe. Its people, especially its white population, enjoyed a uniformity. Rather than seek distinction, many Americans enjoyed buying things their neighbors had, Americans felt comfortable in belonging to a middle class, which is still more or less true today. The biggest consumer product of the period was the automobile. Originally a plaything of the rich, Henry Ford had brought the automobile to the American middle class. By 1905, about half of the automobiles in the world were in the United States. By 1916, the American economy was producing 1.6 million cars a year. Henry Ford had brought the price of the automobile down from about 700 in 1910 to about 350 by 1916 meaning the average American worker could afford to buy a car from six months of his earnings. This led to the development of advertising or marketing, and the rise of popular magazines and radio to sell these new consumer products. The new consumer durables, like cars, were expensive products for most consumers to buy, so the reputation and brand name mattered. More importantly, by the 1920s, advertisements could now be delivered into the home than the new medium of radio, which could reach illiterate consumers and children in a way newspapers and magazines couldn't. By 1939, 28 million home radios were in the United States, 14 million in Germany, 9 million in Britain, and 5 million in France. These developments in production and advertising led to the modern, large-scale corporations we recognize today. With the growth of marketing departments and public relations, corporate bureaucracy with the separation of management from ownership also developed. These large corporations, like Standard Oil and the railroads, with their sophistication and complexity, brought into being management. Salaried executives, who were later called executive officers instead of owners, now ran companies. Each organizational unit in the firm had a specific task, like marketing, sales, services, etc., with its own hierarchy of executives, managers, and workers. In the United States, where the government remained relatively small, these corporations became the country's largest, most intricate social organizations. They wielded great power in the nation's affairs and society. Despite the trend towards giant corporations starting in the 1880s, more efforts failed than succeeded. National salt, national wallpaper, and many more failed to get off the ground. Even today in America, most people work for small companies. Of the Fortune 500 companies established before 1910, only 29 still exist today. By the 1920s, advertisement played a critical role in the new era of consumer capitalism as it attempted to develop a continually responsive consumer market to buy its goods. Business had to not just create products to sell in the market, but create the demand in consumers to buy these products, many of which were non-essentials like makeup or soft drinks. Through advertisement, consumerism took on a new tone and importance, which defined unity on the basis of common ethnicity, language, class, and common desires, hence the birth of the American material dream of owning a car, a home, and all of its trappings, such as a washing machine, refrigerator, etc. This was in contrast to previous values of self-sufficiency, thrift, and community. Some also saw consumerism as the answer to communism and a fundamental process of Americanization of the immigrant population. Immigrants would become American through a process of abolishing their old culture and memories and rebuilt around a common language and aspirations for mass-produced goods, again, the so-called American dream. Many American elites were shaken by the Russian Revolution of 1917. They believed that a new order had to be established and that this could be achieved through a combination of consumer ideology distributed through marketing and public relations. Advertising also began to create an interesting dichotomy in American capitalism. On the one hand, it pushed a vision of mass consumption and homogeneous American middle-class values. Yet it also began to offer products that promised to give people greater individuality, extracting themselves from the masses. An example of this is from the 1920s. In an attempt to boost sales of soap by the Cleanliness Institute, which was a front for soap producers, in an ad from the period, the illustration shows a multitude of men climbing over one another to reach a summit. At the top of this human mass, stood one figure, his arms outstretched towards the sun. Those rays spelled out the words, heart's desire. The ad cautioned that, quote, in any path in life, that long way to the top is hard enough, so make the going easier with soap and water, close quote. Hence, you can see the individual versus the masses and how corporate America, in this case, soap, can be help, help you achieve that individuality. Advertisements also began to play with concepts of sexuality and FUD or fear, uncertainty, and doubt to sell products and services. Speaking to women, ads offered beauty, romance, security, and husbands through the use of their products. Ads continually presented a picture in which people could not trust one another, or in some cases even themselves. While in contrast, corporations presented an alternative to failed communities offering security and a future of prosperity built on paternal leadership, science, and technology. Despite the growth of the middle class and the progressive reforms of the early 20th century, wages remained too low and corporate desires for profit too high for most working-class Americans to actively participate in the new consumer society. It was estimated that the average American required at least 2000 to 2400 annually to join the consumer class, but the average American received less than 2000. Even the widespread purchase of automobiles was through installment payments, savings, and was often done at the expense of clothing, food, or the mortgaging of family property where it existed. We often hear people bemoan the decline of family values and masculinity in America today, but these changes go back to at least 100 years with the rise of consumer capitalism. Women fought for and achieved the right to vote. They were a major force behind prohibition and social norms were changed. As women took on new roles in society, women dressed differently, wearing short dresses and doing away with the corsets of the Victorian era. Divorce rates exploded by the 1920s. Divorce between 1870 to the mid-1920s had grown by 35% each decade and was more common to those living in urban areas versus rural settings. Before the Industrial Revolution, the family was critical. Despite its innate oppressiveness and hierarchy, the patriarchal family was not a vague ideology spread throughout society as, quote, tradition. It was a necessary form of social existence in the struggle for survival in a predominantly agricultural economy, which required hard labor in a society faced with chronic scarcity. For the average woman to not have a husband put her in a certain economic jeopardy with the danger of falling into prostitution to support oneself. Industrialization changed all this. Women could work in factories and make wages sometimes more than their husbands or fathers. By the late 19th century, many more professions opened to women in office buildings and department stores. The factory became the new basis of social organization and the family of dependent workers was a relic of the past, devoid of economic necessity. A man could very easily leave his wife and a wife could very easily leave her husband. Hence, the family was now only a ma- maintained through emotional bonds. Moreover, the man alone in most situations could no longer economically support his family alone. The Bureau of Municipal Research of Philadelphia estimated that 25 to $30 a week was necessary to maintain a family of a wife and three children, but three in five working men earn less than $25 a week. Children ceased to be an economic asset to their parents, becoming a liability as child labor came to an end. Children, like women, had also become a new market of consumers to advertise and market to. Advertising in corporations, despite being cutting edge, pushed back against these changes, advertising an ideal patriarchal family with the father as the breadwinner, the wife as the virtuous loving homemaker, and obedient, fun-loving children. Where patriarchy had once been supported by the material conditions of society, the rise of consumer capitalism saw it evolve into something of a tradition or faith. The other method developed during World War I to play a critical role in the rise of consumer capitalism was public relations. PR men saw themselves as social scientists or engineers controlling public perceptions and consent. The field dated back to the 1890s and the French social psychologist Gustave Bon. Le Bon believed that liberal ideas had grown beyond the concerns of the middle class and had given rise to more inclusive ideas of popular democracy. He feared that the lower classes would become chaotic, easily like in the Paris Commune, or manipulated by demagogues like Robespierre. Le Bon argued that the masses were not moved by reason like the middle classes but by the passion and crowd mentality. By the 1920s, the writings of Sigmund Freud and psychoanalysis had given scientific credence to many of Le Bon's arguments, especially in regards to crowd mentality. Le Bon's friend, Gabriel Traedy, provided a solution to this problem. He suggested that through the use of the new mass media consciousness might be managed and order achieved. However, up until the 1900s, many companies and businessmen saw little value in public relations. This began to change, however, with the rise of investigative journalists and public discontent with corporations. The original PR men, like Ivy Lee, were former newspaper men, and they were contracted in crisis situations, or what we would call damage control. One of Lee's most famous customers was Rockefeller, who was a despised figure in most of America in the early 1900s. In 1914, 14 striking miners and their wives were gunned down by the Rockefeller Mining Company. The public was outraged, and Rockefeller hired Lee. Lee ran counter stories in the papers, making it appear that the workers and not the company were responsible for the violence. Carl Sandburg famously called Lee a hired liar. Many PR men were still regulated to ambulance chasers. They longed for the opportunity to have a long-term client. Nevertheless, most companies still didn't see a need for their services on a regular basis. One exception to this was Theodore Newton Vail, president of AT&T. Vail saw public relations as a vital part of their corporate strategy, and he hired their own PR men to work full-time for them alone. In the midst of regulation, trust-busting, and hostility in the general public, AT&T wanted to become a monopoly and dominate the telephone business. However, they realized that the times had changed and that they would have to change the public's perception about big corporations if they wanted to become a monopoly. AT&T wanted to convince the public that its interests and the interests of the American public were in line and one and the same. AT&T would connect people across the nation with high-quality phone service. They claimed that AT&T was the glue that held modern society together. AT&T attempted to become more non-threatening and more, quote, user-friendly by having women operators as opposed to men. AT&T, in addition, paid their workers the highest industry wages with good health benefits to maintain company morale and keep away troublesome journalists and unions. AT&T quickly set about attacking newspapers that opposed them and also helped those that ran positive stories about them. AT&T realized that by 1900, advertisement had overtaken circulation income for, for newspapers and that most newspapers could be bought off with ad revenues. AT&T also began a process of what today we would call social listening. They monitored the nation's newspapers and magazines for negative or positive statements about the company, in addition to monitoring the speeches of national and local politicians, university professors, and student radicals, in order to counter opposition. These intelligence reports were then circulated to AT&T lawyers and executives. AT&T would eventually achieve its task of building a monopoly and surviving as such until 1982. By the 1920s, many businesses seeing the success of companies like AT&T and the CPI during the war were interested in psychoanalysis and public relations and hired men like Edward Bernays and others who pioneered the field as companies grew ever more sophisticated. Companies also began the process in the 1920s of mining public opinion and marketing surveys to understand their market base for even greater sales revenues. In summation, the 1920s were a great time for advocates of laissez-faire capitalism and America's corporations as they felt secure in their influence and place in American society. However, all that changed with the Great Depression. The Great Depression, like no other episode before or since, posed such a crisis for capitalism that the very system seemed to be in its death throes. The Depression originated in the United States after a fall in stock prices that began around September 4, 1929. And became worldwide news with the stock market crash of October the 29th, 1929, known as Black Tuesday. Between 1929 and 1932, worldwide GDP fell by an estimated 15%. By comparison, worldwide GDP fell by less than 1% from 2008 to 2009 during the Great Recession. Some economies started to recover by the mid-1930s. However, in many countries, the negative effect of the Great Depression lasted until the beginning of World War II. The Great Depression had devastating effects in countries both rich and poor. Personal income, tax revenue, profits, and prices dropped, while international trade plummeted by more than 50%. Unemployment in the United States rose to 25%, or about 17 million people, and in some countries rose as high as 33%. Moreover, many of those who still had a job were either underemployed or they worked a part-time position. Thousands of other people lived in tenement housing or looked for work as hobos riding the rails from city to city. The exact causes of the Great Depression are highly debated. However, many of the causes or contributing factors can be highlighted. Much of the consumer spending was, as we have pointed out, done on credit and installment buying. Debtors could not service their debts when their incomes collapsed. Farmers had gone into debt and faced financial hardship as demand for foodstuffs declined after World War I. The banking system itself was overleveraged as they had lent out more money to buy stocks and real estate investments than they had to individual businesses by 1928 to buy more machinery or hire more workers, which helped lead to a run on the banks and a collapse of the financial system by 1930. By 1932, 2,200 banks had failed in America. This led to large-scale deflation, which helped lead to mass layoffs as companies tried to cut costs to stay competitive, which meant that less people had money to buy goods, which meant that more businesses cut people lower to lower costs or went out of business altogether. The Federal Reserve and the government failed to address the collapse of the financial sector and deflation because of the orthodox views of economics at the time although some called for the Fed to save the banks and inject funds into the economy. The generally accepted economic theory at the time believed that business was prone to cycles. Upswings in production or new markets would lead to speculative excesses, which had to be cleared away by an inevitable downturn. Thus, the liquidation of bad loans and non-profitable businesses was a good thing, and attempts to mitigate its effects would only prolong the depression and make it worse. President Hoover tried to soften the cycle by trying to work with businesses and having $140 million approved for public works, most notably the Hoover Dam. However, these efforts proved to be too little, too late in halting the Great Depression. During the first age of globalization, the world could manage economic shocks to the system from the cooperation of the great powers and the strength of the British Empire and its gold standard. But the First World War had economically weakened Europe and Great Britain. Europe had been devastated by the First World War as the conflict had cost some 38 million deaths with another 20 million wounded, physically and mentally significantly affecting the European workforce, which was compounded by the debts of the European empires. With the failure of the American banking system, the United States could no longer loan funds to Germany to repay its reparations to France and Britain. Without those payments, Britain and France struggled to pay their debts to America, hence compounding a ruthless cycle of bankruptcies that swept up millions as they lost their savings, homes, jobs, and businesses. By 1932, Great Britain had suspended the pound's convertibility to gold, and only the United States and a block of Western European nations led by France maintained currencies backed by gold. But these nations faced stiff competition as Great Britain and Japan could sell their goods cheaper. This led to tariffs between the major powers of the world. World trade plummeted, and the international financial market virtually ceased to exist. By 1933, the world economy was was dead in the water, and the future of capitalism was in doubt. I want to thank you for listening to Episode 7, Part 2, Capitalism. Join us for Episode 7, Capitalism, Part 3, where we will continue to look at the economic and social system of capitalism. Feel free to comment and rate us on iTunes, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook at the History of the Cold War Podcast and at Twitter at Cold War Podcast to find our latest news and Cold War content. We created a Facebook page as well, which should be easier to find when you search, so feel free to join the group and like the page. Also, before we end today, I want to encourage you to send us any ideas for episodes you might have. We want to continue to produce content you enjoy, so please feel free to send us your ideas. We have about 170 episodes planned at this point. We're trying to produce the series chronologically as much as possible, so if you do send us ideas, it may take us a while to make the episodes if it's a subject that deals with the later Cold War. And don't forget to feel free to email questions to the thecoldwarpodcast at gmail.com. Cold War Podcast, all one word.